0: Following audio is for Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemanuel.net. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We actually are coming to the last chapter of this book. Some of you have been with us the whole time as we've studied it verse by verse and concept by concept. As we come to this last chapter, those of you who are serious Bible students, you know that frequently the last chapter of a New Testament letter is a bit personal, it's a it's a change in genre. You find things like "say hi to," and they'll actually list names. Say "say hi to these people that I know," or or wherever they're at. They might say, uh, "Hey, these people list their names. Say hi to you." And maybe I'm I'm hoping to come to you uh, before winter next year, or I want to get with you. Or in this case, he's uh, at the end of this chapter is going to say, uh, "Timothy's out of prison, and we're hoping to come to you." So you have a you have this different kind of feeling. It's kind of like. Uh, uh, did anyone ever write you a letter or a card, and uh, they're writing along in regular size handwriting and font, and then they they have more to say, but they realize that now they don't have enough, so then they start writing really really small, and then they go up the side, you know, and then it says over, and then there's something around the back, and well, that's kind of what you get here. I mean, the the writers using papyri with those of you who don't know what that is, it's a it's a thinned out animal skin and ink, and that's very expensive in the day. And he's, maybe he's coming to that where he's starting to write smaller. And and there's another feel to Hebrews 13. And that is, uh, it reminds me of when I was a kid, and my mom was taking me somewhere. And she would give me those last motherly admonitions before I got out of the car. Did that, that ever happen to any of you? you? Maybe she's uh maybe she was going to take me to a friend uh, for a sleepover or something, and so we get we, we, it starts about you know six or eight blocks away. We're just about to get there, and so she starts to say, "Now, you obey, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. You do whatever they say, and and uh, whatever they have for di- whatever they, they have for dinner, whatever they put in front of you, you eat it without complaining." Any of your mothers do this too. And you know, don't don't belch at the table, and don't put your elbows on the table, and eat with your mouth closed. And am I the only one? So uh, you know, and then you know, and then she would say she'd give me some other things, and you know, it's kind of like you know what you're you use good manners like your dad and I have taught you. And usually it was all the way by then. My seatbelt was off, the door was open, I was halfway out the door. And usually the last one was like, and be nice to your sister, you know, kind of deal. Well. That's the feel that Hebrews 13 has. Uh, All through the first 12 chapters, all the way through last week, the writer is writing for us serious theology. He's writing about this is the old covenant, and this is what Christ did, and this is how he fulfilled it, and this is the new covenant, and this is who we are as the church, all the way through last week when he says, and God is going to shake the world one more time. But when we come to Hebrews 13, it's entirely different. There's these quick, staccato kind of admonitions of things that we should already know, things that we've read about in Scripture before, and now He gives them to us. Now, uh, by way of introduction, the last chapter 2 is, is completely to Christ followers. There, there are parts of Hebrews that are written to Hebrews who were unbelievers, but the last passage is to Christ followers. We belong to Christ. And as such, we're called to live a different kind of life than unbelievers. You and I are salt and light, and we are, we're children of the king. We are sons and daughters of the king. We are princes and princesses who belong to God. We act different than regular folk. And when we forget that, well, we don't finish the race well. So in this last metaphor, we've been talking about running the race of faith. There's a, this, this why don't some people finish well part two. That's what this sermon is. There there are people who knew the Lord, loved the Lord, lived for the Lord, and then they stumble along the way. And these quick staccato admonitions from the writer of Hebrews are reminders. This is why some people don't finish the race well. Now here's how it goes. The last phrase of chapter 12, look at verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. First phrase of chapter thirteen, let brotherly love continue. Does that sound odd? You're like, Well, that's a change. It's because he's running out of space at the bottom of papyri. He's he's now got he's switched over in that sense. And there's something here that's really important. If you were here last week, uh, you know that there was a there was an outline that I gave you, and then there was a timeline that I gave you, and you know that we looked at the six uh, bowls of judgment and the six uh, 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 seals of judgment. and We looked at 18 judgments in all and the timeline for that and the abomination of desolation and when Christ the wins the rapture, when the return. And if you left just going, wow, that, that was so much. Here's what I want to tell you. You don't have to worry about any of that. God's got it. In fact, you, whether or not you fully understand that or not, doesn't impact whether or not that happens. God's got it. He's going to take care of it. He's telling us ahead of time. But there is something that God wants from you. Oh, you think, you think oh, what is it? Is that God wants me to be involved in this great thing. When he comes back the Battle of Armageddon, maybe I'll, I'll write. No, he wants brotherly love to continue. And this is where we fail sometimes as Christians. Sometimes as Christians, we get all enthralled in these studies like end times or prophecy or some deep doctrine. And in reality, we get, we, we get where we make our walk with the Lord intellectual or only intellectual. And your, your intellectual abilities aren't what gets you into heaven. Say amen. Yeah, if you're like me, I'm like, oh, Amen. It, 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 it's, you don't have, it's not your SAT score that gets you into heaven. It's not about your intellectual understandings. You should do your very best to understand as much of your Bible as you can. But ultimately, it's about love. I mean, let's be honest. You already know more of your Bible than you do, right? Now as your heads are, I will preach at you for a second. You already know more than you do. So it's not about knowing more. It's about doing more and out of all the things that we do what's the single most important thing that we do here it is chapter 13 verse 1 let brotherly love continues the believer who finishes the race well the one who finishes the race of faith is the one who keeps love the main thing so, so the good news for us is it's not how many seminary degrees we have or how much theology we understand. It's about how we live a life of love. Now, we know from Scripture that the Bible says this over and over and over again. Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment of all? He says, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. He gives the second, the second greatest commandment of all, love your neighbor as yourself. John, the apostle, when he writes 1 John, says, how can you claim to be a Christian if you don't love? If, he literally says, if you don't love your brother, you're not a Christian. This is exactly how he says it. How can you claim to love God who you can't see when you don't love your brother who you can see? So we have this admonition about love. What does Jesus say about love? All men will know that you're my disciples by the really good theater seating you have at your church. No, he doesn't say that. He says all men will know that you're my disciples because you thoroughly understand Pastor Paul's timeline last week. No, because you love. Love is the essence of who we are. When the Almighty God of the universe comes into our hearts and lives and He forgives us of our sin and He changes our, our, our destiny and our direction and we're no longer hell-bent, but we're heaven-bound and we're no longer uh, addicted to and dominated by the, the sins that Satan uses and He changes us, we now fo- have the capacity to love. Let me see if I can make this clear. Unbelievers have the capacity to give physical affection, if you want to call that love at some level. Unbelievers have the capacity to have emotional and psychological connections that feel like love. But only believers who have experienced the agape, unconditional, life-changing, divine love of God have the ability to give it. If you've never received it, you can't give it. You can't come back from a place you've never been. You have to have received the divine love that God gives in order for it to come. And by the way, you don't even really give it. It comes to you, changes you, and then it's God's love that flows through you. I'm not really able to love my neighbor, but God is through me when I allow him to do the work. So the writer here, like the, 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 the writing's almost over. Hebrews is coming to an end. We're about to get out of the car. The last thing that, that he's saying to us is don't forget love. Re- remember that love's the main thing. Uh, my good friend Charlie Martin, many of you know, I've asked him to speak here on several occasions. He's really a mentor to me in many ways. He always said, remember the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. It, it's a good axiom for life. So if love is the main thing, and I think we can make the case that it is, if love is the main thing, then the main thing in your life is to keep the main thing the main thing. And whenever it's not the main thing, you've wandered off a little bit from the direction that God has for you. That's the first reminder here. There's a second reminder. By the way, there's a couple parts of this. In verse 2, he says, let brotherly love continue. And, and here's his actual, here's his admonition. He says, and don't neglect to show hospitality. He's talking about love uh, for strangers because thereby some have entertained angels unaware. He, he literally says, you, make sure you love people because the person that you're interacting with might not be a person, might be an angel. That's, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? God's at work in the world. Um, do you think in your life you've ever seen an angel uh, I, I had one occasion in my life where I think I think there was an angel that intervened in my life I was in the third grade I was walking home there was a kid who was a sixth grader who was a bully and uh, he just he just wanted to beat me up and I there's no way out of the fight I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't run fast enough. I knew I couldn't beat him up. He was way bigger than me. And so finally, he pushed me down, and he had me he had me in the uncle position. You know what I'm talking about, where he had his knees up on my shoulders? And he it was just like this, and he was just getting ready to tattoo me right there. And, uh, and this other kid came and just tackled him right off the top of me. And they rolled around twice, and then the other kid was on top of the bully. And then what I remember was, smack, smack. He just beat the snot out of that kid. And uh, when he got up, I said, thanks. And he said, oh, he said, I've been wanting to hit that kid for a long time. Here's the funny thing. It was my, my elementary school wasn't that big. I had never seen that kid before, and I never saw him again. I think he was an angel. And I like that angel. Well, the Scripture says one of the motivations for us loving is you never know who you're loving. You never know what that looks like. That was for free. It has nothing to do with the sermon. Second admonition in verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And remember those who are mistreated since you are all also in the body. He's talking about the body of Christ here. Now, when you look at this, you might think right away, oh, the admonition is to remember those in prison. But that's not really it. The admonition is, don't forget that we are all in the body of Christ. Now, uh, when he writes this, he says, look, uh, remember that there were some among you. He's talking about believers who were in the church, the part of the body of Christ, who have been imprisoned because of their faith. He's, he is, he's not talking about prison ministry here. Nothing wrong with prison ministry. Prison ministry is really fantastic. Uh, we've been a part of it. We've supported it. And uh, But he's not talking about doing ministry to uh, men who are murderers and rapists and thieves and trying to lead them to Christ while they're in prison. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, remember that out of your church family, out of the body of Christ, there are some from your church that have put have been put in prison for their faith. And remember them as if you were in prison. Treat them like you'd want to be treated if you got hauled off to prison. And he's, he's reminding us that we are the body of Christ. Remember uh, back in chapter 12 when we were talking about heaven? couple weeks ago. And one of the things the writer says in verse 23 of chapter 12, when he gets to heaven, he says, when we get to heaven, we're going to see the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And I told you that this word assembly is the, is the same Greek word that's almost always translated church. It's ekklesia. He's, remember, he's telling us that when we get to heaven, it's going to be the church that's gathered, that, that assembly that's gathered in the name of Christ there in heaven. Here's what I want to tell you. When the church is gathered in heaven, the work of the church is already done. Don't wait to be a part of the body of Christ when we get to heaven. That's just the praise and worship. That's, that's the only thing that takes place there. Be a part of the body of Christ, the church, here on earth. This is where we are called to build one another up, and to love one another, and to care for one another. This is why he does say, all men will know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. In fact, what I would say to you, and I don't have time to preach all of this out, but what I would say to you is that God's plan for your well-being is found in the church. God has a plan for your life. He has a will for your life. And God's plan for your life, we know from the Scriptures, is a good plan. He's a good God. He's a loving God. He wants to bless you. But listen very carefully. Many of you are removing yourself from the blessing that God wants to give you because you're removing yourself from the body of Christ. This is where we're called to be salt in a savorless world. This is where we're called to be light in a dark world. This is where we're called to be truth in a confused world. This is where we're called to be love in a world of hatred. How much hatred is in our world? There's so much hatred in our world that Muslims not only kill Muslims, they kill other Muslims. Think about our world how sinful and wicked and depraved it is. What is it that the world needs? The world needs Jesus. Who has the gospel message? The church. We're the body of Christ. You and I, the hand, the wrist, the elbow, the shoulder, working together to do the work of the kingdom of God. And God has a blessing for you, He has a plan for you, and it's not divorced from the church. So many people in modern America think, I come to church kind of like a consumer, get what I need, but I'm on my own with God. That is not God's plan for you. It's God's plan for you that we together do the work. So he's saying, what, he, what he's saying here when he says, remember those who are in prison? He's saying about the family of God, don't neglect each other, but build each other up. That's what we do. The, the, the old word in the King James Bible was edify. It's if you build an edifice, if you, you, you're, you're constructing it. You build each other up. It, we don't tear each other down. Nobody, nobody in this room needs another person in their life to keep them humble. Nobody needs another person in their life to tear them down. We all need somebody to love us and uplift us and build us up. I'll never forget, I was in a uh, church committee meeting one time, and there was one guy in the committee that was kind of cantankerous, and he was being adversarial. And finally, one of the guys said something to him about his attitude, and he said, to, to defend himself, he said, well, I'm just being the devil's advocate. To which the first guy said, the devil's got enough advocates already. That's what I would say to you. The devil doesn't need any more help. But the Lord calls us to be the loving, caring, building up community of Christ, the church, the body of Christ. That's who we're called to be. So can you feel them? They're quick, aren't they? Let, love, let brotherly love continue. I would say, let love be the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing. And then and then, remember the church. Remember what it is. Build each other up. Don't tear each other down. He comes to verse 4. There's another one. It's he's just going through them quickly. Let marriage be held in honor among all And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So, another admonition. We're we're about to get out of the Hebrews' car. The writer is saying to us, remember this, remember this, remember this. This is why some people fail. This is why some people don't finish well. And what he says next is, in my paraphrase, hey, and remember, Christians don't live together. We get married. That's what we read right there. We read something about God's design for marriage. Now, I've been in the ministry a long time, a long time now. I'm getting old. Uh, 30 years ago, I, I don't know that any pastor would have actually made this the point of their sermon because everybody knew that. Everybody knew that. People who weren't Christians knew that. In fact, most people didn't live together first, but now we're in a different America. We're in a different America where now not only the culture chooses to cohabitate, the culture chooses to have sex with a whole lot of people, uh, the culture chooses to live together and then maybe later get married. In fact, the idea is, by the way, here's the human earthly logic. Let's live together and see if it works, and then we'll know if we should get married. Here's the problem with that. The more, uh, the more people that you sleep with, uh, have sex with before you get married, the more likely you are to get divorced. If you live together before you get married, the more likely you are to have a divorce. And so all of this earthly logic, it doesn't work. Why? Because it goes against God's design. God has a design for marriage. His design for marriage is a man and a woman in a lifelong monogamous relationship. That's God's design for marriage. And your life works best when you fulfill that which you were designed for. There's so much confusion around this right now. So what happens with us sometimes as Christians is we take this uh, strong biblical stand because we vote for families and we want these kind of things. But sometimes Christ followers forget that it's not just about protecting and defending the institution of marriage, but we should do that with our personal vows as well. You and I, those of us in this room who are married, those of you who aren't married, you should be uh, preserving yourself in purity until you are married. But those of us who are married, there's a place here where we move past the way the world operates. It's a, it's a place where we, we don't even choose to be flirtatious, and we don't choose to try to be enticing, or we don't worry about sex appeal. We are devoted to our spouses, uh, I'm, I'm going to date myself with this, but I'm going to go ahead and use it as an illustration. Before there was Jimmy Fallon, there was Jay Leno. Before there was Jay Leno, there was Johnny Carson. All right, Anybody else in the room as old as me remember Johnny Carson? Thank you. Oh, it makes me feel a little bit better. Okay, uh, Johnny Carson was the first really, really popular late-night guy. If you can remember Jack Parr, you are old. Um, Johnny Carson was married seven times in his life. And on this one particular night, which I always remembered, I, to this day I remember it, Johnny Carson had an actor named Ricardo Montibon, uh, and he was talking to him. Now, the, those of you who are Trekkies, remember Khan? Those of you who are older, Fantasy Island? <laughs> That's Ricardo Montibon. Uh So so um, Johnny Carson says to Ricardo Bon, he says... Uh, you know you were you always played Latin lovers, and uh, you 're kind of known as a Casanova He said and let you, and, and he goes and yet you 've only been married to one woman. He said, "How did you do that Now, uh, just so you know, Ricardo Montibon uh, was married to one woman for sixty three years before he died. He was married to one woman, his entire life sixty three years. Uh, Johnny Carson was trying to be kind of funny. That's what he did. It was late night funny stuff. Ricardo Montivon took the opportunity to teach something. This is what he said. Never forget it. He said, Any dog can go from female to female. He said, A real lover can satisfy and fulfill one, moment, one woman for an entire lifetime. Johnny Carson couldn't wait to get to commercial break. you know what? I never forgot it. I never forgot it. That's, he was really embodying what we're reading right here. This is what, who God calls us to be. He calls us to be, uh, as men, a one-woman man. As women, a, a one-man woman. That's what he's calling us to be. So true believers don't defile themselves with the loose sexuality of secularists. All around us, everybody's just saying, if it's two consenting adults, it's okay. No, it's not. I'm sorry to say it. I know I sound old-fashioned. It's Scripture. God has a plan, and in that plan, he protects and blesses sexuality, and he makes it wonderful. And outside of that, it's not so wonderful. It just gets to be perverted and tedious, and you miss everything that you're longing to have. And this is part of who we are is what God calls us to be. Did your mom or dad ever, when they were giving you that speech, like you're getting out of the car, did they ever, did they ever say to you, and remember, this is who we are, you know, like, like in my family, my mom would say, and remember, we're Joneses, we don't keep up with them, they try to keep up with us. Well, I say to you, we're royalty, we belong to the king, we belong to the God of the universe, we are sons and daughters of God, remember Who you are. Number four, quick staccato, separate kind of things, reminders so we can finish the race well. Verse five. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. The last thing that the writer says to us in this particular passage is that the believer who finishes the race of faith well doesn't love money. We know some things from other scriptures. We know that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We know that God says, remember in the Old Testament where he says, I alone am God, I, I am one, and I'm a jealous God, and you can't have any other gods before me. We, we know that God doesn't share, God won't share your heart. He's not going to share your heart with your little idol, whatever it is. And the idol that most people have in their heart is money. You can't have God and money both as objects of worship. God won't do that with you. Jesus himself says you can't serve God and money. So what's the key to that? How how do we overcome that? Well, by being content with what we have. That's the second half of that verse. And you and I have got a problem. I will to be really straight with you. We live in a culture. We live in an American culture, which is entirely geared. The, the whole mechanism of money and retail in the American culture, every single commercial is to make you discontent with what you have. I mean, think about this week that we live in. We, we had Black Friday. But let's be honest. How many businesses did Black Friday week and then we had Small Business Saturday. And tomorrow we got Cyber Monday. And every commercial is just telling you, oh, you don't have this. You need this. You've got to have this. And it, it's all geared to make your soul discontent with what you have. I didn't know it, but now after the weekend watching football, I need one of those vacuums that just as a robot goes around by itself. I need that. Isn't that how it happens to us? I think I, I don't have that. Does everybody have that? I think and I need a drone. I don't have a drone. I get a drone and put a camera on it, fly it over my neighbor's deck. I wanna see what kind of grill and barbecue it has, because I might need a better one. See how it gets us? And I need a I need a different car, and I need a different truck and I need more clothes and I need this and I need this toy and I need this gadget and it's going to be now to Christmas they're going to tell you this is what you can get this is what you can get it's the whole materialism made to make you dissatisfied made to make you discontent and yet the Lord says the love of money becomes an idol God's not going to share your heart with that idol and discontentment can take you away from God. So Christians, believers, we choose not to love money. We choose to be content with what we have because our God knows our needs and he can meet all of our needs. Philippians 4:13, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He says, he clothes the lily and nobody's ever looked prettier than a lily. He takes care of sparrows and sparrows don't have any farming mechanism to get what they need to feed their young. He takes care of them. How much more are you worth than they? And we're reminded of this as well. So here we are. We're we're pulling up to the curb. The writer of Hebrews has only got one chapter left, and he's starting to tell us things. Remember, remember, remember. What does he tell us? Remember that love is the main thing, and the main thing is to keep the main thing. He tells us, remember, you're in the body of Christ. You weren't made to freelance, this Christian thing. Stay with the body of Christ and care for one another and build one another up. He says, hey, remember, God is the one who made you a sexual creature. And sexuality is is blessed and preserved inside God's design for marriage. Keep it that way. Live that way. And he says to us, don't get attached to money. Don't do it. It's hard for a rich man to get into heaven. It's hard for those who want money to get into heaven. They can't make it. God won't share your heart. Trust in him and be satisfied, be content with what you have. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. If you're not here this morning, or if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I want to say to you, these admonitions are all for believers. You can't get to heaven by keeping God's uh, commands and being good enough because you'll fail all along the way. What you need first is the shed blood of Jesus Christ to wash away your sins, and you need his Holy Spirit to come in and dwell you so that then you're capable of doing what God has to do. That's the starting place for you. But if you're here this morning, you're a believer, what I want to say to you is, here's here's the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, reminding us of these little things that we often forget. We're quick to forget that it's all about love we think it's about being right or or I know this doctrine I know this bible teaching or how much you know and it's how you live your life and every one of us can love we're reminded not just to love but to love as the church of God to build one another up are you building up others around you or are you always tearing them down you think it's your job to keep them low no it's not it's your job to build them up We're reminded about our sexuality, that we don't look like the world. We don't live like the world. We're called to God's design. And we're reminded that God can meet all of our needs and we don't have to worry about money. Has one of those been your problem? one of those been an area where you've struggled? And this morning God's saying to you, you can trust me. Will you? That's what it comes down to. It comes down to a decision comes down to a place where you say, God, I I choose to trust you. Here's my life. I give it to you. Father, this morning I believe that you know every single heart here. You know every journey. You know every struggle. And you care about us in a way that we could never imagine. You love us with a love that is lavished on us and it's unimaginable to us. And So today we we want to receive your love. We want to walk in your ways. We want to know your blessing. And you've reminded us that here's some areas where we trip up. So we're asking you, pick us back up again, dust us off, forgive us for where we felled you, and let us walk in faith the way that you ask us to. Father, if you'll do this work in each one of our hearts today, we promise that when somebody notices you in our lives, we won't take credit for it, but we will just praise and worship you. We will give thanks to you for what you've done in our lives. This we pray in the most precious and holy name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Well, when we're talking about finishing the race of faith, it begs the question, how do you finish well? And from this very passage, I want to give you a three last truths. It's, it's right where I stopped reading. He says, keep your life free from money, be content with what you have. And then he says this, for God has said, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. M- many of you have heard me quote that a hundred times. Well, here's one of the places in Scripture where you find it. God's promise to you. And because God makes that promise, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's three truths in this. First of all, Jesus is never going to leave you or forsake you. If he could lie, he wouldn't be God. He fulfills every promise. This is a promise he will keep to you. Secondly, the Lord is my helper, the writer says. It comes, it comes from the psalm. It comes from what David said. To me, it sounds backwards, right? I should be the Lord's helper. But God, in his humble spirit, Jesus, in his humility, becomes my helper. What a strength that I have. And then the third truth is if God's my helper, if he's never going to leave me or forsake me, I'm not going to be afraid. What can man do to me? Jesus said the worst thing that man can ever do to you is kill you. But he said God can kill you and send you to hell. So don't be afraid of man. The worst thing man can do to me is send me to heaven early. How good is that? And so he says, go forward. You can do this because God will never leave you, forsake you. He's your helper, and man can't do anything to you. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemanuel.net.